For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out systems for themselves, cracked systems that can hold no water. And the psalmist writes, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We think we're pretty clever with our feats of engineering and our inventiveness, but we stand on the shoulders of the pioneers of innovation and those who laid out the principles on which our ingenuity depends. The wonders of the ancient world are many. The pyramids, the pagodas, the fabulous palaces, the Great Wall of China, the monasteries of Bhutan that seem to cling by their fingertips impossibly to the cliff edge. And our breath is taken away by the majesty and mystery of what they have done, those ancient engineers and architects. How did they do that? Bridges where no bridge should be. Temples of extraordinary loveliness and intricacy. And cathedrals, centuries in the making. And of such beauty that you just have to fall silent when you go inside in face of their awe-inspiring loveliness. The genius of the ancients. Don't underestimate it. But water was always an issue in the ancient world, an environmental and an engineering challenge. How to harness it, catch it, store it, keep it safe. How to make sure you had some water when the enemy was at your gate and your city was under siege. The Justinian cistern in Istanbul is amazing. I remember standing in respectful silence in this cathedral-sized water container, underground chamber, being told by a very proud guide how it was about 9,800 square metres in area, capable of holding 80,000 cubic metres of water, the ceiling supported by a forest of 336 marble pillars, each 9 metres high, in 12 rows, 28 columns, 4.9 metres apart. And the system had a capacity to store 100,000 tonnes of water. An amazing place. They hold concerts there. There's even a coffee shop, which I think was probably not in the original design. The astonishing hill fortress of Masada stands in the middle of the Judean desert, a monument to Herod's impossible dream. And the systems along the side of Masada, they say, can hold 10 million gallons of water with secret passageways so that the enemy didn't know you could find water. It was all about water back then. Impossible Roman aqueducts spanning valleys. Water. In a world where clean running water was more dream than reality, People realise that you can't drink gold and silver coins and you need water to put in your goblet, no matter how ornate it was. 
The ancient city of Jerusalem had a whole range of cisterns to fend off the threat of being without it when the enemy came. A real crucial environmental element. And when the British took over in Palestine after the Ottoman Empire, they counted 7,300 cisterns, cisterns in the city with a capacity of 98 million gallons. And the people had to collect rainwater in these big cisterns and made them part of their houses in a land where no rain can fall for six months and springs and streams are very rare. A sound cistern that worked was an essential adjunct to every home. The system had to work in troubled times or the city would be vulnerable and would fall. A leaking, a cracked system would be more than an annoyance. It would represent a potential disaster. You get the picture. And Jeremiah's thirsty audience certainly got the picture. Who in their right mind would swap the assurance and certainty and dependability of secure systems a water supply that would be there when you needed it, when the burning heat beat down upon your city and thirst raged, who would risk losing their water supply and the refreshment and salvation that represented and replace that with something inadequate, potentially deadly, cracked and leaking systems? Only a fool would think that made sense. So says Jeremiah, why did the people of Israel think, why would any rational person think it made sense to swap the wisdom of God with its assurance of a life of integrity and holiness, exchange that for the tawdry inventions and constructs of man-made customs and practices and lifestyles that would bring only ruination and heart. But this, says Jeremiah, is precisely what's happening with the people of Israel. God wants them to have the best, and they're choosing for themselves the worst. The shallow and the passing, the trivial and the dubious. By rejecting the will of God and flouting his commandments in favour of their own agenda, they're missing out on the good life he offers to them. And heading over the cliff into the abyss. They're opting for third, fourth, or fifth best when they could have what the Lord in his fatherly love wants for them. The best, the good life, marked by uprightness and integrity, compassion, and the long view. Walk through any major city on a Saturday night or very early on a Sunday morning and see the quality of life many people choose for themselves. Relationships that are short-term, self-interested, shoddy. Lifestyles that are dangerous and damaging. A choice to live for the moment that fails to take account of the long-term implications. A generation driven by pleasure-seeking and instant gratifications that seldom seems to raise its vision above the immediate and to heck with the risks and it's not just religious people that are concerned about that about the emphasis of modern culture and the price it pays health officials social workers 
politicians, police officers, educationalists huddle together and shake their heads at the folly upon folly of those who embrace short-termism, headstrong, headlong, all night long, dashed towards the hedonistic lifestyle, caring not a jot for tomorrow. And the wider world, the disadvantaged world, grows more and more alarmed as new generations emerge in the West who show little interest in wider social obligations, seem dedicated to the worship of the twin gods, me and now. Me and now. For every Greta Thunberg, there are a thousand who just want to have their fun, their space, their needs met. Of course, this is not the whole story of a generation or two or three generations. But a close observer of the way in which we organise our society will sense that many people make many choices that are fraught with danger for themselves and for the world. And which made, once made, these choices don't actually seem to make things better for people for the individual or for the society in which they live, but towards which they feel very little loyalty. And all the while, the way to life lies before them. Light and fullness, but they choose their own way. When the cisterns of God's grace and love towards them are full to overflowing with love and grace, they prefer compromised and cracked values and actions of their own making. And the water of life, the soul-refreshing deep resources of God seep out into the sand and with them the joy, the hope, the peace, the purpose that he would provide. If only, if only. Jeremiah and the psalmist are, are as one in their sheer disbelief that this is happening. And they indicate that God's prevailing response to this belligerent folly is not to be angry, but to be desperately sad. Like a father watching his child ruin his life, rejecting the values they've been brought up with, doing their own thing, regardless of the cost and the outcomes and the brokenness and the fractures and the misery they bring on themselves and other people. It's hard to watch. It's heartbreaking. Be appalled, says the Lord. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And the psalmist reinforces that sense of helplessness and disappointment. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that Israel would walk in my ways, says the Lord. I would feed you with the finest of wheat. And honey from the rock, with these I would satisfy you. He only wants the best for them. He only wants the best for us. Not the contract that tells a generation that life is found in selfish pleasure-seeking and abandoning the truth to live the lie. That's what drives us in the church. 
That's what motivates us to reach out to others and to have a faithful witness to them. Not to win the argument. Not to say, here we are with all the right answers, so you better listen to us. Because, but because we've seen how it goes down in the world. How it turns out the brick wall people run into the haunting emptiness. The Times reported on a survey of 200,000 British children last Wednesday. The results came out. And the results were that children in Britain are the least happy they have been since the survey had last done ten years ago. We want people to have life in all its fullness. Not some foreshortened, hollow version of the real thing. And because we believe that life with God, life in Christ, is life indeed, then we want to share that. Because people are too precious. People are too precious. Each one is too precious for us to let their potential, their possibility, their sacredness, trickle out into the sand from cracked systems, wasted and lost. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to spend a few moments in quiet reflection as we move to our communion service.